fourth episode of our podcast series, Bridging the Gaps, produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Caroline White. And I'm Sean O'Conline. One of the most dramatic changes we've experienced in the course of the COVID lockdown has been in travel, with a great many flights cancelled and other forms of transport drastically cut back and, of course, the enforced closure of much of the hospitality industry. This has thrown the travel and tourism sectors into huge disarray, triggering staggering levels of job losses and pleas from airlines for bailouts from governments. It's clear that everyone who's lost their job during the coronavirus crisis will urgently need access to a means of livelihood. However, it's also clear that attempting to restore travel, particularly aviation, and tourism back to exactly the way they were before would be extremely unwise because of their worrying and growing environmental impact. So what sort of future should travel for tourism and business have? Later on in this podcast, we'll speak with Professor James Falconbridge, who's the head of Organisation, Work and Technology Department at Lancaster University. He'll be describing the kinds of cultural norms that have come to be associated with business travel and how those norms have been affected by the lockdown and how travel for business might evolve in the future. Before that, we talked to Manuel Gravenyak of the International Stay Grounded campaign, which aims to dramatically reduce global aviation and to promote a different kind of travel in the future. We began by asking what it is that makes aviation in particular so problematic. Aviation is the most climate damaging mode of transport, especially when it comes to per kilometer per passenger. So if you travel by plane, your carbon footprint grows by a lot. Plus, of course, when you take a plane, you go a very long distance. So this is normally for people who fly a lot a big part of their carbon budget. We always have to repeat this over and over again, it's 5 to 8% of the global climate heating effect that's coming from aviation. And it's not us saying that, it's, for example, the environmental agency in Germany who says that. And this is because, one, the CO2 emissions of planes are emitted in a higher altitude, so they're just stronger because of that. And additionally to that, There's other emissions, for example, nitrous oxide emissions, water vapor, and also induced cloudiness. And all this together and some other uh, minor things contribute to global heating. So again, in total, it's like 5 to 8% and rapidly growing because the aviation sector is one of the most, if not the most rapidly growing sector when you look at not just all the transport sectors, but all the economic sectors. What about the effects on jobs if you you cut back drastically, for example, on flights? Even now with the collapse at the moment of airlines with the virus, of course, there's a lot of talk of bailout of airline companies. How would you approach that? What would be your ideal approach to helping the workers without trying to recreate the situation we had before the virus? So first of all, very often we see that the aviation industry overstates their contribution to the economy and their job creation. But of course, yeah, many people work in the aviation sector, that's true. And with Stay Grounded, we launched at the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis, we launched a campaign called Save People Not Planes, 
which is calling to not have bailouts that are just transferred to stakeholders, to the managers of the airlines that are now being bailed out, but that is actually saving people, um, saving jobs, but also calling for a just transition. So I think it's clear, having in, in mind what we just said, that aviation cannot go on like it did now for decades. It cannot grow two or threefold over the next decades. We cannot get back to that track because it's ecologically and to a certain extent also socially destructive. So we want governments to invest in programs for retraining workers, for rebuilding and changing airlines. Um, an airline does not always have to be and to stay an airline like it is now. It could also diversify when it comes to its business model, being more like a mobility, let's say, partly a mobility agency, also investing in other forms of mobility with that renaming and exchanging, working together better with train companies, for example. And I think governments have to look very closely when it comes to in what and how they invest right now, because if they invest into airlines now and in five years they see, oh, now, the climate crisis is getting worse and worse. We have to do something, we have to change something. And actually now change and shut down a big part of the aviation industry. Then just all the money that's now invested would be wasted. So how to help the workers? I think they have to be secured. They have to have an income right now during the crisis. We will still have aviation, of course, no matter what, in the future, to some extent, I hope it will be much smaller. In this small aviation sector, still many workers will be needed. And then the other ones should be retrained and work in other sectors. You mentioned that less than 20% of the world's population has ever set foot in a plane. Some analysts are concerned that aviation will resurge as the lockdowns ease, but risks becoming still more elitist than it was before. Is there any way to forestall the ability of the wealthy to fly whenever and wherever they want, regardless of the damage they cause? So I think this is a hard question, a hard topic. Um, I mean, the world is unjust. Um, I think um, the distribution of wealth and income is a topic in itself. And I think with that comes that things like aviation will be distributed unequally, I think, also to some extent in the future. But I think you can limit that at least to some extent. So, for example, by imposing general limits on the aviation, for example, on the infrastructure, if there is no airport in a given city, then you cannot fly there, no matter how rich you are. And in a real climate-just world, there could not be as many airports as we have now. There would have to be very few of them. For example, there's a study for the UK that says that within decades, all of the airports in the UK, except for Heathrow, would have to be phased out to abandon to reach absolute zero emissions. So, for example, having just a few airports in Europe would limit also the ability of the rich to fly. Plus, of course, and maybe a little bit less utopic is another measure we have developed with Stay Grounded and 
also um, some other organizations are calling for that, namely for a frequent fire levy, which is like a tax on tickets you pay and the more often you fly, the more you pay. One thing is that already now, in general, flying is taxed very, very low. So let's say you have a decent amount of taxes on your first ticket in a way that's also giving you a little push in the right direction when it comes to your decision, taking the train or taking the plane. And then this tax increases gradually more and more with every flight you take. And for example, if someone takes eight, nine flights a year, which is nowadays possible and just done by a very tiny minority of the global population, if someone flies eight, nine times a year, then they would have to pay an amount of tax that's a few times the actual amount of the ticket price. So I think that would already lower a little bit of the unequal and unjust distribution of flights. That reminds me of something I meant to ask earlier, which was you mentioned that airlines, our aviation industry in general, tends to overstate how good they are for the economy. Could you expand on that a bit? Yeah, you can see the aviation industry overstating their positive impacts economically all over the world, especially in the Global South. And if we look at the Global South, what people in our network tell us is that in many cases, an airport is built in a city, in a country where there wasn't one before and a few jobs are created. And at the same time, people lose their livelihoods, for example, where local farmers before then are forced to work in other professions without being trained for anything else. And this happens all over the world. And especially in countries in the global south, where then with the newly built airports, tourists come and supposedly bring money to the country, what we see is that very often this money actually flows out of the country because the investments come from countries in the global north. Say a UK company is building the airport, is building the hotel. And of course, they have then some people working there, some local people working there for them. In many cases, also people from other countries. And then, of course, the profits flow again, flow out of the country. And actually, the value for the country, the region itself, in many cases, is very low. This is especially true for countries in the global south, but also to some extent in other countries in the global north. And of course, what you cannot value monetarily are other things like nature and let's say naturally grown social communities, local communities, a village devastated by an airport that has been built cannot be recreated in the same way. So um, aviation has just economically viewed has certain positive effects, can bring some money to regions, but can also be very devastating at the same time. One of the, if you like, the facets that we in FASTA are trying to establish is how organizations like your own partner or have a relationship with other organizations so that together, I think you have more than 150 different relationships. So it would be interesting for us to understand, first of all, how you chose that model and how you've done it and how important it is to the whole movement for you. So actually, the roots of the Ground Network are in Austria. 
uh, where some of us a few years ago were active against the plans to build a third runway at the uh, Vienna airport. And we were active in a local group resisting against this runway and the airport uh, politicians were always telling us but yeah if we don't build this runway here people will fly from munich people will fly from bratislava cities that are closed and then we said no there is resistance against projects like this one in many countries almost everywhere where you see airport projects you see resistance and so we started to connect with other groups and a few years ago we had a global action day and brought together information and exchanged with these other groups and made small things like a video and common press releases and so on and a little bit for countering this argument but if we don't build it here we'll build it somewhere else so it doesn't make a difference if you resist here and out of that actually the thing that Stegon is now developed because we saw wow this really works people want to connect people want to exchange we can learn a lot from others we can maybe uh, tell other people our experiences and let's keep working together and this grew and grew over the years and now we have 150 member organizations out of the world even more organizations signed our 12 point position paper for a just and climate just transition also when it comes to campaigns like our recent safe people not planes campaign even more organizations and individuals from all over the world um, engage with us and support our causes so in the case of the campaign it's more than 350 i think organizations from all over the world now who support our three demands which are to support people and not stakeholders with uh, bailout money to have a just transition and to rebuild and change aviation and for aviation to pay fair taxes. So what we can see is that resistance against aviation is definitely growing, at least until COVID-19, the negative consequences and impacts of aviation were growing. What would you see as being a, a good future of travel what would be a, a good way to find the balance between conserving resources and also being able to have the enrichment of travel and perhaps manuel if i could just interrupt i know travel has been totally opened up to young people over the past i don't know 10 15 20 years whereas before it wasn't and what message of hope or what positive message would you give to all these young people who who like to go and experience new cultures in the farthest parts of the globe so how can you give them some form of joy and hope yeah i think i have a bad and a good message for these people or for everyone actually so the bad news is that we cannot do what the aviation sector calls democratization of aviation or of flying. If we make a small thought experiment, if everyone would take one long haul flight a year, everyone, no matter who and where they are in the world, let's say, I mean, we have now, I think, 7.8 billion people living on the planet. If every one of them would take just one long haul flight a year, that would exhaust our carbon budget to stay below 1.5 degrees of global heating within 10 to 20 years. 
let's say, a flight from London to New York. It's just not possible. And still now what we see is that flying is elitist. So until now, much less than 20% of the global population have ever set foot on an airplane. And it's just not possible to increase that. So that's the bad news. We cannot have aviation like we had it, grow it like it was growing until the COVID-19 crisis. But I think it's not as enriching anyways in many cases when it comes to traveling far or also to closer destinations. Because if you, for example, go by plane to Thailand for one week, and you spend 90% of your time there in in the hotel complex. You don't see anyone else besides other holidaymakers and the staff working there. You don't exchange with the local population. You don't see a lot of the culture except for the tourist attractions. I think that's not really enriching. That's not really exchange. And that's also not sustainable. So... I think what we can have, though, in the future is less travel, slower travel, but more conscious travel. I think what will be definitely possible in various ways is, for example, your once-in-a-lifetime adventure, going to Latin America, going to South Asia, going there maybe by boat and going for a few weeks or taking the Trans-Siberian Railway to China and spending really spending also time traveling in a conscious way experiences how the landscape changes when you look out of the window i think that's really experiences that are enriching and that you will remember for all your life and then wherever you go spending some weeks or even months there really engaging with the local culture with local people that's what i see as the future of traveling and I mean, I said once in a lifetime adventure, that doesn't mean that we can never travel, but just think about how much we could actually experience in our closer surroundings. I think just in my city, I don't know so many places I could still experience. There's so many different people living here, really engaging with just more parts of your surroundings and also looking a little bit further like towns in the next state or uh, the neighboring country and going there by train or going there by bus i think will be definitely not just possible but important in the future and i think a very good concept for that and for all the things that are connected to that is open localism we have to of course be open to all the other cultures in the world may they be close to you or on the other side of the planet um, be open to exchange and to learn new things but at the same time rooted where we live and rooted also in the foundations for our society in the natural foundations and basis for life that was Manuel Grevenyak describing the Stay Grounded campaign. Roughly 75% of airline profits derive from travel for business. And for our next interview, we spoke with Professor James Falconbridge, who's the head of the Organisation Work and Technology Department at Lancaster University in the UK, and who's researched the cultural norms which are associated with international travel for business. We began by asking him how business travel has evolved over the years. It's a complex story. The simple answer is that travel is fundamental to how most organisations now operate and the work that a lot of people do. And of course, there are many people that don't. 
we should be careful here. You know, there is a, a large proportion of the population that does not engage in international travel for work, but a, a significant number of sectors, and particularly the sectors that we might call kind of knowledge work, travel for those sectors has become you know, absolutely fundamental over time, whether it's higher education or corporate banking. I think we can see how the fundamental structure of our way of working has business travel embedded within it now. And, mm. and, and that's in some ways a relatively recent story, but in other ways had a much longer history. So we can think back to the 1900s and even before of the kind of study tour as a kind of archetypal business travel that had a, both a personal but also often a, a kind of more commercial interest to it. So, so it's been there for a long time. But of course, over time, we've seen certainly the widening of participation. And there are different phases in that story, but I think we certainly can't miss the kind of 1990s onwards story where the connecting together of the rise of the low-cost airline and the liberalisation of, of the airline industries, coupled to you know, enhances in technology that facilitate other forms of communication coupled to trade liberalization and we put the three together we see the exponential rise probably something like 10 percent growth per annum wow. in, in the number of travelers over a number of years and really only recessions kind of denting that that change there is a, a moderately strong correlation i think when you look between growth in inward and outward foreign direct investment and levels of travel and that's mm. no surprise of course because most travel is about doing international business in, in some way. So I think it's very clear that business travel has become fundamental to the way we work. And I think that's the, the, the way we work is probably the important thing to reflect on. But in general, when we're talking about business travel, people don't travel to do the traveling. So they don't decide it would be good to make a trip. Instead, they travel to serve a particular business purpose or function that it's deemed necessary to be present in person to conduct, which then leads us into questions about why we, we feel certain types of business activity have to be conducted in person. And I think the wider kind of implication that spins off from that is that in many ways, that need for travel and that assumption that travel is how we work has, has now, most cases really, become embedded in how organisations operate. So whether it's from simple things like the business travel budget through to much more complex things, actually, you know, things around careers and promotion and progression, which either explicitly or implicitly places travel as part of the consideration of, for example, what defines a successful worker. Mm. Uh, so we can, we can see that, and you know, I can see that very close to home in academic careers where an international profile and reputation and international activity is deemed as valuable and evidence of academic success in a variety of ways, which effectively inscribes everything from the international conference through to international collaborators as a fundamental to a career. You know, and the, So we can see it in, in, in those kind of examples and, and some of the organisations I've studied o over the years, some even explicitly had travel and participation in international projects as measurable kind of KPIs for people. I'm curious to know whether there's any research being done on any outcome, any benefit of people traveling. So even though it might be a, a career promotional condition almost to be successful in your career, or there may be KPIs, as you said, but is there any evidence that it actually proves business or improves anything, um, people going on all this travel? I've seen probably 10 years ago now, research from interested groups, travel providers, travel agents, highlighting the benefits of travel, but they had a particular agenda um, in, in promoting that. 
I think what's recognised is that, that there are both individual and organisational benefits, but there are also equally individual and organisational costs. People have tried to do analyses of return on investment, but it's virtually impossible because what's so difficult to understand is, is what would have happened if the travel hadn't taken place. So, you know, you can say, well, we got a new contract as a result of that travel, but you can't definitively say you wouldn't have got that contract if you hadn't travelled. But of course, no organisation would take the risk of not going to see that client in case they interpreted the unwillingness to travel as a sign that, you know, we really don't value this business and we're not that interested in it. So it's very, very difficult, I think, to disaggregate a kind of return on investment kind of idea at the individual or the organisational level. And a good example is that often many business trips end up being then enrolled into tourism activity as well. And there's a quite significant amount of research on this that you know, a lot of trips involve people either staying longer to add in tourist time or even if it's only the afternoon before you before the flight back engaging in kind of leisure activity and so clearly you know that potentially brings benefits for the individual the negatives may well be that they're away from their family they have lots more work to do when they get back because of what they've not been able to do while they're traveling is a big body of research that associates business travel with issues around well-being um, that's mental health stress anxiety which can be caused simply by the, the pressure of travel and work but is often also related to balancing home and domestic requirements maintaining family and friendship etc if, if when particularly if people that are traveling a lot who may spend a high proportion of time away from home so i think you know the, the, the relationship between issues of well-being and issues of travel are very clear and has been one of the drivers for organizations really reflecting on travel as well as the carbon side you know it's, it's almost there's a kind of a triple whammy effect of this costs a lot of money for the organization it's probably not good for the well-being of the, of the workers and it has a negative carbon effect one of the things that about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, intrigued me most, and is still the fundamental conundrum, was a quote from one chief executive in relation to their carbon budgets, effectively, that was said, fundamentally, we know that travel is now our biggest cause of carbon emissions. It's also the one we have no idea about how to do anything about. And I don't think that's changed, to be honest. Most organisations recognise, you know, a lot of work's been done around buildings that you can pin down and you can tangibly do something about through adaptation. But travel has been the one that you know, most organisations are pleased if they can report their carbon emissions haven't gone up. Many report you know, increases alongside declines from all of the other activities that they're involved in so it's very very difficult to really pin any kind of assessment of whether they can justify that in economic or other terms as you were saying it's very hard it's been very hard to shift this pattern of increasing business travel but yet now of course there's pretty much none happening one of the fundamental things we need to recognize about what has happened with the virus the fact we have to stop traveling is that it's suspended many of the normal expectations that go with work and doing business the fact that you can't travel means people no longer have a choice there's no longer any socially symbolic messages being sent by not traveling and the normal taken for granted assumptions of this is how we do things and this is the appropriate way to act have all been suspended out of necessity and so it goes back to an example I talked about earlier, where previously we probably would have thought that if we were trying to win a new client, that if we haven't gone to visit that client and maybe done the pitch to them in person, we would have been sending the signal that we really weren't that invested in winning their business. Mm. Um, we didn't necessarily really value that relationship. And of course, all of those presumptions can no longer exist because it is simply that we cannot travel. 
So that's changed the situation. You know, hopefully, I think it challenges some of, of those assumptions and, and potentially resets some of them. So, so I don't think it's a technical question. Yeah, nothing changed dramatically technically in the last two, three months. Zoom and Microsoft Teams have done some tinkering and editing to improve some of the provision. But fundamentally, that was there before. What has changed is this kind of the context that we not being able to travel, but it challenges the social norms in some ways, resets them. The question is, of course, how that moves forward. And often what we see with these disruptive kind of moments is that what is suspended during the, the disruptive moments quickly gets re-established afterwards. And I think this is the conundrum that most people now wrestle with, is about how do we take this as an opportunity, not necessarily just to go back to the normal afterwards. How do we prevent that happening? Mm. Um, that is the big challenge that I don't think you know necessarily anybody has an answer to. But you know there are moves in terms of attempts to think about whether it's support for airlines and the, the kind of the conditions that come with that. You know, I think the Air France loan and the support from the French government was attached to a requirement to reduce the number of internal flights within France. So trying to think about some structural things that might help and facilitate that kind of prevention of a return to normal. This isn't about nobody ever traveling ever again. It's about trying to perhaps reset that kind of level of embeddedness of travel in what we do. Mm. So I think, yes, those social things really matter. I don't think we're talking and thinking about a scenario where people don't travel at all. We're talking about a scenario where the kind of levels of demand for travel and the embeddedness in travel in what we do is reduced through a new state of affairs. What's your dream future, maybe, James, that you would be looking at? So I think one of the lessons we will all have taken from the last two, three months and however much longer we continue to operate in this way is I think we all have developed new skills and new competencies and they will continue to be perfected. But we've sort of had an accelerated and intensive period of learning where I would say now the majority rather than minority sort of understand the basics of how to make an effect. What might a good future look like is obviously very subjective and isn't singular. But I think what perhaps we have slipped into, you know, perhaps the past decade or so, is a tendency to not value travel um, and its impacts perhaps in the ways we might. So the analogy of needing to go to the conference to make new relationships and meet new people. Um, and most people currently experience that, you know, that's something that's significantly missing from all of the digital things we're doing. I think in the future, the question will be not whether we need to do that, but whether we need to do it as much as we were all doing it before COVID hit and we were unable to travel. So we may you know, want to still go to conferences and do these things, but maybe we won't do three or four a year anymore. Maybe we'll recognise that actually, you know, we think very carefully about which ones are the right ones. We need to do one of them. And simple cost may drive that, but it may not be. It may be that, you know, it's all a part of a wider questioning of travel. And, you know, so if it's clearly on the agenda before but maybe you know this moment gives us an opportunity to to question it more overtly and use that questioning to kind of reset some of the ways we do things that was professor james falkenbridge describing the challenges involved in preventing the culture norms that were associated with business travel from simply reinstating themselves as the lockdown is eased Transport generally is a huge topic, and in this podcast we focus mostly on tourism and business travel. We plan to discuss freight transport and the need to shorten supply lines in a future podcast. Very many thanks to Manuel Gravenyak and Professor James Falkenbridge for participating in this podcast. And thanks as always to Lisha Kelly, Gramagat 
for your music on the harp. Please tune in for our next installment of Bridging the Gaps at the end of June. Thank you.